0: from KQED.
1: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, science journalist Ed Yong says he first began worrying about the possibility of a second pandemic back in March when the coronavirus was taking hold in the United States. But it felt needlessly alarmist to fret about it then. Young doesn't feel that way anymore. He joins us to share what he's learned over months of reporting on the pandemic for the Atlantic and from his conversation yesterday with Dr. Anthony Fauci about our prospects for bringing the virus under control. Join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Even as the nation struggles to contain the coronavirus, science journalist Ed Yong says America must prepare for another virus. The only certainty is that pandemics are inevitable, Yong writes in his latest piece for The Atlantic. So it's only a matter of time before two emerge at once. The problem is that the U.S. is now in an even weaker position to deal with it or any other disaster. Ed Young has been reporting deeply on the pandemic for months, from how we got here to what we must do to end it. And he joins us now. Ed Young, welcome to Forum. Hi, thanks for having me. Very glad to have you on the show today. So why did you decide it was no longer alarmist to deal with a second pandemic now? I mean, pandemics are rare, right? What are the chances that two could happen at once?
2: So, you know, I can't tell you, like, a, a specific probability, because, like you say, they are rare. And um, But I can tell you that um, the disease that most people who work in pandemics and who work in preparedness were thinking about before all of this happened was flu, that there would be a new flu pandemic. And that is inevitable. There have been flu pandemics many times over the last century. There will definitely be one if you and I are lucky to make it through this current pandemic. But you know, flu is still out there. The fact that we have a coronavirus pandemic, which should be clear is different from flu, does not lessen the chances that a new type of flu will emerge, nor does it lessen the chances that any other kind of um, emerging new infection will emerge. And I think that we, we have this sort of feeling that we only, we only deserve one disaster at a time. Right. And that if we, you know, given that this is such a big society upending event, that surely, like, this is, you know, we are maxed out on catastrophe here. Mm-hmm. Sadly, so that's that's not the case. You know, these are viruses. that They don't, you know, there's no etiquette involved. And in some ways, a world that is struggling to control one pandemic is actually weaker against another. And so you know, I don't want to be alarmist. When I first started thinking about this question four months ago, I really did dismiss it thinking, well, that's just absurd. Um, But the fact that the US has really struggled to control COVID-19, it's still struggling, and that there's little respite in sight means we need to start thinking about the possibility of compounded disasters, not just a new pandemic, but upcoming flu season, hurricane season, wildfire season. The longer we let this fiasco go on, the more vulnerable we are to overlying disasters that um, that are layered on top of it.
1: And it sounds like you feel like part of the reason that we are even more vulnerable or weaker in terms of a nation to deal with it, is not just that the virus, the the properties or characteristics of the virus itself, but also in the way that we've handled it.
2: Absolutely, um, you know. So if if we think about the virus itself, the most likely um, pathogen that would cause another pandemic would be a respiratory one, much like this coronavirus. Now that in some ways is a boon because some of the measures that we're putting in place now to control this current pandemic, wearing masks, um, social distancing, and so on, reduced travel, will help to mitigate the risk of a second emerging virus really taking off. But we shouldn't be able to, we shouldn't rely on that because we are even now using those measures imperfectly And as a result, as as a result of our failure to really go the distance with social distancing, you know, as as a result of the rushed reopenings, the the federal fecklessness that we've seen, the lack of a, a coordinated national strategy, we are in a very weak place. We are in a place where our resources are burnt out Uh, like our, our medical supplies still are running out our hospitals are filling up our healthcare workers our scientific workforce our public health workforce are all running on fumes and a lot of the resources that would have gone into watching for emerging viruses whether it's this upcoming flu season or another strain of pandemic flu have been completely diverted to the COVID response. So we really are, in in some ways, actually more vulnerable to future threats because we, we are, I don't want to say distracted, because we're very reasonably focused on this current threat, but it really is um, occluding our vision to everything else that is going on in the world.
1: And it sounds like, on top of all of that, one of the things that you point out that I hadn't really thought about was just how our international alliances have been weakened. Why is that a problem?
2: So pandemics are by then very nature a global problem. And they cannot be fought um, on an individual nation basis. They, you must have some kind of clo- um, global cooperation. And that's always been like, the, the maxim for global and public health um, for, for past decades, um, that viruses just spread too quickly. Supposedly intuitive measures like travel bans are actually remarkably ineffective at controlling either viruses or travel. And so these things spread and you want a world that is cooperating and that notifies, uh, that, where countries notify each other Um, about uh, emerging threats. Now, in this case, all of those norms really just broke. Um, You know, China suppressed information about the virus quite early on. A lot of other countries didn't make, including us, didn't do anything with whatever leads they have and instead imposed travel bans. Um, And we are now on the the receiving end of many of those travel bans. And we have also, uh, America has also acted in ways that harm international alliances. Donald Trump has um, already tried to begin the process of pulling out of the WHO, defunding the WHO. It's not clear to, whether he actually has the legal authority to do that, but it is a statement. And it is a statement that if push comes to shove, when the world needs to bandy together against a global threat, America will not do its part. And. America will pay the price for that in terms of global standing and in terms of what aid and support it receives from other countries. Um, If it continues down this road, it will turn into a global pariah, and that will be a huge problem for future pandemics.
1: We're talking with Ed Yong, who covers science for The Atlantic about his reporting on the coronavirus pandemic and his concerns about our ability to deal with a second pandemic. One of the lines in your piece, Young, that I was so struck by was this point where you say diseases are not just the work of viruses and other pathogens. They are also influenced by every aspect of a society, from cultural values that affect whom it cares for and ignores, to political choices that determine how it responds when challenged. And I have to ask you about how members of the administration have been mocking, discrediting, sowing doubt into the directives that Dr. Anthony Fauci has been giving, the nation's, the administration's own infectious disease expert. And I know you spoke with him yesterday, and I would like to just play a clip from your conversation with him first, if I could. This is you asking him a question about how the White House has been treating Fauci.
2: You are the government's top health advisor, and the government you're trying to advise is, actively trying to discredit you. How do you work
3: like that? Well, that is a bit bizarre, Ed, I have to tell you. <laughs> I think if I sit here and just shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, it's, that's life in the fast lane. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it is a bit bizarre. I don't really fully understand it. You know, I think that what happened with that list that came out, I think if you sit down and talk to the people who were involved in that, uh, they are really, I, I think, taken aback by what a big mistake that was. And I think if you talk to reasonable people in the White House, they realize that was a major mistake on their part, because it doesn't do anything but reflect poorly on them. And and I don't think that that was their intention. I don't know. I cannot figure out in my wildest dreams why they would want to do that. But I mean, I think they realize now that that was not a prudent thing to do, because it's only reflecting negatively on them. I mean, Ed Young.
1: What do you think of how the administration has treated Dr. Anthony Fauci and the impact that it could have? I mean,
2: so no one is flawless, but Fauci is one of the um, most respected and experienced people in this field. He has advised every president, since ronald reagan about epidemics Um, you know he is a veteran scientist he brings so much wisdom and expertise to this he's exactly the type of person you want to be involved in a response to a pandemic such as what we're experiencing what kind of country has that person at their disposal and actively releases oppo research against that person who is in their own task force you know it, it is it is unbelievable that this is what America has come to um, that it has not only been so disdainful of expertise and hollowed out its own administration of the necessary experts but when it actually has one at its at, you know at, at its service um, it actively discredits him. That, that is just, you know, it's beyond the pale, but it's also part of a broader problem. You know, it, it, it's reflective of the fact that the Trump administration has silenced the CDC, one of the greatest public health agencies in the entire world, so the one that is the basis of similar agencies around the world. There's a reason why it's the China CDC or the Africa CDC. The, the CDC is the model. And they have been silenced. They have been sidelined repeatedly. Again, if you have such an agency at your disposal in a pandemic, why push them aside? Um, I, I, think, I think this has been one of the saddest aspects of um, America's utter failure with COVID-19. And to be clear, you know, the CDC, Tony Fauci, um, there are people here who are working day in and day out to provide advice to fight this crisis, and they're doing it in spite of and often in direct opposition to their own federal government. Um, And that is truly tragic.
1: Speaking of the CDC, I mean, can you help us understand how unusual it is for the Trump administration to order hospitals to no longer send patient data to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention? I, I don't, I don't know what to make of that, um, but I know that it's been very alarming for health ex- health experts who fear that they won't get access to that
2: data anymore. It certainly is alarming. I, I don't want to, um... Uh, I don't want to specifically comment on that at the moment because I haven't done my own reporting on that story and, and you know, there's so much nuance to what these kinds of decisions mean that I don't want to go... I, would, I don't want to give you, like, second-hand opinions. No, mm. no one needs, like, um, armchair expertise here. But I will say that, obviously, what we want is transparent information, right? We all need that to make sense of what is going on. And the less transparency you have the worse um, things get. There, there have already been you know, several contentious episodes, several accusations of, um, of state-level leaders um, fudging stats around the coronavirus. You know, this is not something you expect from, um, from a country like this. Um, it's not something you would expect in a pandemic at all. Like, the problem doesn't go away if you duke the numbers. It just means that you are less equipped to make sensible decisions um, about what to do. And, and yet that is the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Like, uh, even, even without that problem, America has already struggled. Like, we have not had enough tests. We, this is you know, one of the richest countries in the world, and it still can't count how many sick people it has. Um, and I fear that that problem is going to get worse as we decide to play fast and loose with data that should be transparent and open to everyone.
1: Well, one thing that you did deeply report on was just the kind of toll these health health experts who are raising alarms about (laughs) uh, this diversion of data from the CDC to the Department of Health and Human Services, just the toll that this epidemic has taken, this pandemic has taken on healthcare providers And the public health community, can you talk about what you learned there and also how that contributes to your growing concern about our capacity to deal with another virus?
2: Right. Um, A lot of public health people. So I'm I'm not talking necessarily about the doctors and nurses on the front lines treating patients. We've heard a lot about them and they are also going through exactly this. But I, I specifically wrote about folks in public health. So, people who are trying to care for the um, health of entire populations, people who've been trying to analyze the data that's coming in, offer advice to policymakers. Those people are really running on fumes right now. They have been in the thick of this since before most of the rest of us took it seriously, since early on in the year January, February. They've endured many sleepless nights. Um, they have been um ignored uh, by the very people they're trying to help they've watched as their predictions um have come to pass and a lot of them are facing harassment threats um because of how badly this pandemic has been polarized and i don't like this situation is untenable you can't continue on like this forever and that is going to be to America's detriment because we sometimes think of expertise as this like nebulous concept that you can value or disregard, or you can just sort of pluck out of the air. It's, it's not, right? Expertise exists inside the heads of people and those people are bone tired right now. And if we continue disdaining them and ignoring them and, you know, um, treating them like trash and threatening them, they will burn out. And there's actually not that many of them. There's way fewer than you might think, which is partly why they're all so tired. If they do burn out, we're really going to be in, in trouble because then we will, we like, everything that you're seeing now is going to get worse because we won't have decent advice that we can rely upon.
1: I think I saw this stat from the National Association of uh, City and County Health Officials that said dozens have have either resigned or retired or left their jobs in other ways, which was very scary to read. And I know you asked uh, Dr. Fauci about what kind of impact the way that the administration has tried to discredit him has had on him generally. What is your sense of of how he's doing?
2: Um, You know, when I spoke to Tony Fauci um, in March, he told me that he had been... Um, getting three hours of sleep a night and then sort of working himself up to five Um, so and that was you know several months ago so think about just like the physical toll that that takes on someone Um, and the and the emotional toll of so preparedness is kind of a horrible thing to have to deal with at the best of times, because you are always trying to look at the world around you, work out where it's weak and think about the worst case scenario. Like this is just not a happy mental space to be inhabiting for a concerted amount of time. And the folks who have been in that space, not only have to continue doing it, but have to watch all their worst case scenarios come to pass which now means that they're thinking ahead several months into the future and thinking, you know, what if what I fear now comes to pass? And this is exactly why I wrote the piece about the double pandemics um, possibility. It's not to scare people, but it's to say, like, we genuinely need to stare these problems in the face. It's the fact that we've looked away for so long that is the problem. I mean, we talk about um, the public health people having to quit their jobs. We might be able to deal with that better if public health hadn't been massively underfunded for the last several decades, because people don't value what it brings. And what it brings is the miracle of a good, normal, healthy day that we just forget about.
1: Well, I wanna play one more clip from your interview with, with Dr. Fauci, and this is where you're basically asking him Whether the public is getting truthful information. And he also talks about what needs to happen now.
2: I would love for you to tell us the truth about the federal response to the pandemic. Like, do you think that the government is doing enough? Like, is the public, um, you know, are we getting
3: the honest truth from folks in charge? When you look at the numbers, obviously, Ed, we've got to do better. What is going on now? And you look at our country, we've got to do better. So rather than figuring out, you know, who was wrong, who did anything wrong? That's what I want, meant when I said a couple of minutes ago. We've got to almost reset this and say, okay, let's stop this nonsense and figure out how can we get our control over this now? And looking forward, how can we make sure that next month we don't have another example of California, Texas, Florida, and Arizona? Because those were the hot zones now. And I'm looking at the map saying we gotta make sure it doesn't happen in other states.
1: I mean, Fauci there says we need to do a reset. He also mentions California, which has recorded its highest number of cases this week. And, you know, the governor announced that businesses have to close again and counties are reinstating restrictions. Do you think, Ed Young, that that's what we need to do? Is that enough of a reset?
2: Um... It's, it's hard to say. I think um, we're in a difficult position where the virus is clearly raging out of control, but because we wasted that first round of social distancing, all the precious time that people had bought because of federal inaction, we're in the situation where a lot of people are very tired. We might not be willing to go through another round of that, but we might have to. Then again, I think Tony is right in calling in in arguing that it's not all or nothing. Right, it's not like a total lockdown for months on end, or like everything back to normal. We have to be smarter about dialing restrictions up and down as necessary, and having like a like a tasting menu of possible um, restrictions to choose from that are most appropriate for the setting. That is why public health expertise, like we've already talked about. Is really important, and I think that, like, more careful uh, measure, rather than just the whole society-wide blunt-force lockdown, is what is going to be what is going to be most um, uh, politically palatable, but also is going to save the most lives. But we need to be thinking four moves ahead. You know, there is a long time between our actions out in the world manifest in terms of infections, hospitalizations, and deaths. We know that it takes about a month between things happening, policy decisions about like things like reopening, and changes in national statistics, which means that by the time you see those changes, it is too late. If you shut down when deaths start spiking, you are in for a month of spiking deaths. So we need to understand that lag. We need to be acting four moves ahead. We need to be playing chess. Currently we're playing like shoots and ladders. We're just rolling the dice and then tumbling downhill.
1: We're talking with Ed Young, who covers science for the Atlantic about his extensive reporting on the coronavirus pandemic. What are your questions for Ed Young? What are your questions about the pandemic and where we're at? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. More after the break. I'm Nina Kim. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As California and many other states struggle to contain a surge in COVID nineteen cases, science journalist Ed Young says we're now more vulnerable to additional disasters, including a second pandemic. In his new article in The Atlantic, Young says diminishing resources, strained international relations, demoralized experts have America on its heels. We're talking to Young about what he's learned during months of reporting on the pandemic, and we're taking your questions and comments. And Shannon writes, the CDC and hospitals should fight like hell against Trump's rule to bypass CDC. And Lottie tweets, it's the anti-science rhetoric coming out of the White House that sets us back every single time. And that's why this administration would never make progress on global warming either. And let me go to calls. Arlinda in Oakland start us off. Hi, Arlinda.
4: Hi. Um, I am wondering why... um public health departments don't utilize their retired healthcare personnel to help get the word out to retailers about the face coverings orders. Um, Because if retailers start enforcing it um, consistently, these big box retailers, um, more people would learn about what the face coverings orders are. I've seen face shields in Safeway when masks are required and face shields do not meet our county requirements. I've seen masks with valves on, you know, and they don't meet the mask requirement. They're not screening people. Most retailers are not screening people at the door. They're not enforcing it with their, with their customers or their vendors. Um, when I actually brought this issue up at one um, big box store, um, I got crap, um, you know, for bringing it up. So I think that you really have to focus on these big box retailers. And are they requiring masks at the door? Are mm-hmm. they requiring all their employees to wear their masks appropriately over their nose? You know.
1: Yeah, Arlinda. Uh, thanks for the suggestion. I and I also read a piece at Young that said a announcement that said Walmart was going to start requiring that of their their customers in the stores as well. Just curious, how effective are masks against aeros- aerosolized COVID nineteen? I've been wondering I mean, about this and about the WHO's reluctance to say it's aerosolized.
2: Okay, so I think we have to be clear about what aerosolized means. Uh, the, a lot of this debate um, de- revolves around um, you know, difficult terminology that science and the rest, the scientists and the rest of us use in different ways. I think it's clear that um, the virus can travel through the air between people over short distances. It's not like it lingers in the air. It's not like a floating miasma cloud that stays long after you've left. But it can move through the air over short distances. And masks are good at protecting against that. They, jury's still out, I think, on whether they protect you, but it's pretty clear that they, they stop you from giving your viruses to other people. And so the thing about masks is that it's a, it's a collective good, right? You wear them to protect your community. You're, you wear them to save your friends, your loved ones, your families. And if we all do that, then we all stay safe. Um, the thing about masks, I think, that's interesting is that um, it is a public health measure that has gone from 0% to majority approval across the country in a... A ridiculously short amount of time in a matter of months. No public health intervention does that. So, to some extent, we're actually doing pretty good with masks, but we could do better. Um, your caller raises the point about big retail stores. I'm not sure retail stores are really the problem here. Like, sure, indoor spaces are much more risky than outdoor spaces, but what matters are things like crowds, um, proximity, uh, duration. You know, if if folks are in a bar or a restaurant or even in a home inside for a very long time shoulder to shoulder with each other, it's going to be a bigger risk than if you go through a very large, well-ventilated store, um, that is especially one that isn't super packed. So I think, yes, masks are important. We should be wearing masks when we go outdoors and when we go into these public spaces and especially when we go into indoor ones. Um, To the bit about the question about why aren't public health departments making this happen? I think you underestimate just how understaffed public health departments are everywhere. They barely have the resources to make sure that your water is clean and your kids are vaccinated and th- your food is uncontaminated and all of that, let alone having to deal with a pandemic. They don't have like spare people to go around to Walmart telling them to make people wear masks. We, they, Maybe they should have. Maybe that is a thing that you can lobby like your political representatives to do in the future. But at the moment, nope.
1: Are they effective against what we 're learning now about the virus itself? My understanding was that uh, they 're mainly effective against you know sort of droplets from your nose and mouth
2: look even if you 're um, releasing short range aerosols you 're still going to be able to block a lot of them from leaving your face if there 's something in front of your face so you know the 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 science of ma- the the, u- the utility of masks really hasn't actually changed that much in the last few months. Like these debates rise to the surface because someone releases a new report and because people talk about it a lot. But actually I think the underlying evidence isn't that different to when it was like a month, a couple of months ago. And that evidence suggests masks are good. We should wear them. They're not not perfect, right? We cannot only rely on masks. We're not gonna beat this pandemic if everyone masks up and no one does anything else, and the government is still not acting enough. But they are better than nothing, and we can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good.
1: Mm. Speaking of other ways to try to address this, we're getting lots of questions about vaccines. Pat asks, when do you think there will be a vaccine? And Barbara asks, do you think the virus would mutate to make a vaccine ineffective?
2: Um, there is certainly no evidence that the virus is mutating um, anywhere near the pace that this would be a problem in like the near term time scale. Um, maybe it will over a long over, you know, the mat- a matter of several years or so. Certainly flu mutates enough that the vaccine must need to be uh, needs to be updated every year. So we don't know. The, the pace at which that will happen for COVID-19. Um, I would not expect a vaccine to provide lifelong protection, but I don't know how long an update would, how how often updates would need to happen. Um, as to when a vaccine is going to be ready, I think that is the question everyone's asking. And, you know, earlier this year, experts were saying between 12 to 18, 18 to 24 months. Um, it looks like progress in the early stages is going really well, but we don't know is the answer. Um, people have promised, some people have promised towards the end of the year. I'm dubious about that. I'm still thinking more like next year, but the question to me isn't just when are we going to get a vaccine? I, i said this in another interview earlier this week that there are three predictions I have about, let's say we actually have a vaccine. Here's what I think will happen. Firstly, Um, a lot of people will just outright refuse to get it because they have been told for a long time not to trust scientific experts. And maybe even because they have very reasonable questions about a project called Operation Warp Speed and whether that actually um, is going to do the rigorous safety uh, and efficacy testing that would make someone confident about a vaccine. So two, um, the people who most need the vaccine um, people who are uh, who are most at risk of COVID-19, um, black and brown and indigenous and disabled and elderly people, are going to be the last in line to get it, because look at how we're treating people who are in marginalized communities right now. Um, and finally, do we really think that a country that cannot mount the logistical energy to get enough protective equipment out to its healthcare workers Is going to sufficiently and efficiently distribute a vaccine um, in, in a way that actually gets it into people's arms in time, even after it's been approved. I have serious doubts about that. So I just want to make it clear to people that, yes, getting a vaccine and developing one is important, But once you actually have one, there is the difficult business about making sure people actually get it. And there's nothing I've seen over the last six months that makes me confident that that process is going to be efficient or equitable.
1: Well, let's go to Kathleen and Martinez next. Hi, Kathleen.
5: Hi, good morning. I have a comment. Um, I think that the health industry, um, as well as the insurance industry, lost an opportunity early on. Perhaps they can can capture it uh, to have done allowed their providers when they weren't seeing patients to have an opportunity to march through their panel of patients and call them on a day uh, called each one of them ongoing, just through the list and talk with them about the CDC guidelines, ask them about how they were implementing them in their home, geared it to the age generation, and who they were working with, and talk with them at length about those guidelines, how important it was to follow them. And then talk with them about their comorbidities to reduce their risk of getting exposure or if they got exposure to the, to the virus to mitigate or help to reduce their risk of, of dying from it because of their comorbidities. And then they could have built the health insurance industry and get reimbursed for that. Now, none of that educational information gets reimbursed. But if they had done that, I think that we could have had been a voice out there countering this mega voice that we have from above that's giving the exact opposite information. And with a trusted relationship with your provider, there might have been more buy-in to be able to do the kinds of things that we're doing and I, that need to be done.
1: Kathleen, And I agree thank with you.
5: the woman who talked about it. You're welcome.
1: Thank you. Yes, and, and Ed Young, I mean, it's, there are many missed opportunities, I think, just generally with our health care system, and that is being exposed now so dramatically.
2: Yeah, I, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, I think that this country spends an exorbitant, a record-breaking amount on healthcare, and yet oddly gets remarkably little bang for its buck. And I think that the um, this pandemic, um, which is an economic catastrophe as well as a medical one, really shows the problems with having a bizarre and unique system um, that ties healthcare to employment. You know, I think if there was universal healthcare, um, which, uh, you know, has been fought for so very long, I think we'd be seeing very different outcomes right now. And hopefully this is a wake up call about um, the need for access to healthcare. Um, you know, the America was rated by some indices before this happened, as being the most prepared country in the world for a pandemic, I think that's questionable given what we've seen. But even back then, on the specific category of access to healthcare, America was rated 175th out of 195 countries. So, you know, are there missed opportunities around healthcare, and could we have done better? I I think so. I, I really think so. And, you know, maybe this is going to be the wake up call that the country needs to rethink how it apportions healthcare and to whom it offers it.
1: Well, Laura writes We always heard that a virus will strike us down, the big pandemic. Would Fauci say that COVID 19 is the virus that we've been warned about for so many years? why or why not? I mean, Ed Young, would you say this is the virus? Because I, I do recall you referring to the coronavirus as actually a basic virus.
2: Right. Th- this, is, this is not the virus, just to be clear. This is, um, you know, in some ways, okay, so I'll make this argument. In some ways, um, the fact that it is not actually that bad in lots of dimensions makes it quite bad. So what I mean by that is if this were really causing deaths on the scale of, say, the original SARS virus, another cur- another type of coronavirus, it might be easier to spot, right? We might be able to see it moving through the community and act earlier. But it's the fact that it causes mild symptoms in some people, severe in others, that it has this long time lag that it, where symptoms take to develop means that it's harder to monitor its spread. But that also blunts the virus's impact. You know, this is a virus that is not as lethal as a lot of the pandemic flu strains that people have worried about. It's not as lethal as other coronaviruses like SARS or MERS. And it is nowhere near as transmissible as other diseases that we know already about, like measles. Um, If you had this virus with any of those properties going in a worse direction, this pandemic would be so much worse. So yeah, I have said before this is a starter pandemic, and I stick by that. Like the fact that we are flunking this should make us deeply concerned about America's ability to cope with, um, you know, future disasters. This has been described as like a once-in-a-century pandemic, you know, the big one, the perfect storm, all of that. It's only that because we have failed so badly at it, not because this is the worst possible virus we could have been hit by.
1: We're talking with Ed Young. He covers science for The Atlantic and has done extensive reporting for months on it with several comprehensive pieces. And let me go to Ramin in Menlo Park next. Hi, Ramin.
2: Thank you, Mina, for your reporting and also Ed for his Atlantic articles. My question has to do with uh, asymptomatic
5: cases. I guess, given the large percentage of those, I'm kind of wondering how effective testing is, if at all, compared to the basic uh, approaches of
2: distancing and wearing masks.
1: Hmm, Uh, How much good does it do? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question that I've, I've also posed to a bunch of experts. I think that testing still matters, but it needs to be—it needs to have a fast turnaround time. You know, you need to have someone in their doctor's surgery, and they need to get their test results back, like in an, in an hour. Let's say even even a day would be useful. But currently, again, with given that surges are, are happening again, um, we test results are taking several days like a week to get back to people at that point the number of tests you do it doesn't really matter the the testing is is it's all I don't want to say it's pointless but it's I kind of want to say that too like it's definitely not helping you need to link the testing in itself is not um, is not an end point. The testing only matters because it allows people to isolate themselves and it allows um, public health folks to trace other contacts in time. And if you can't do those other two bits, then testing is just a weird abstract thing. Um, so yeah, I agree that you know we, we need to get, it, it really is shocking that a country like the US with the wealth and resources that we have have not been able to solve the testing problem seven months into a pandemic. It was shocking that we couldn't even like two or three months into the pandemic. But by now, that's just disgraceful.
1: Well, Jennifer writes, we're focused so much on testing. I'm an essential worker in a hospital setting and basic germ theory tells you that yes, you can be tested, but then walk out the door and acquire the disease from a door handle. I would like to advocate for the contact tracing system how have we done on that, Ed Young? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, guys. Um, the, um, the okay, so a lot of states have um, improved their contact tracing capacity. Um, you know, so I think it's safe to say that the country is, is in a better position with contact tracing than it was in the early spring. But again, contact tracing. It, like there's no sort of fixed magic number of contact tracers where, when everything becomes better, and contact tracers are going to struggle, in a situation where cases are rising exponentially, as they are in many states, and in a situation where pandemics are have been the, when the pandemic has been incredibly polarized. Like, one thing we don't talk about enough is the is the importance of trust. Right? You need people to go and get a test and that requires them trusting the system, whether it's the medical system or their government or someone else. And likewise, when contact tracing doesn't work, if people don't pick up the phone, and trust is not a thing that this government has been um, you know building up over the last several months quite the opposite it has been stoking the fires of a culture war that has divided the nation more than it has unified it and that is going to cause problems for things like content contact tracing and for testing and for all the other things that we need to do to control the pandemic like contact tracing is important i absolutely agree with that and we should be investing in it we should also be investing in it when we're not in the middle of a crisis like this. Like there are other countries in the so-called developing world for which this is just a natural part of their healthcare, where healthcare is threaded into communities rather than just left to be the province of incredibly costly hospitals. And we should maybe think about our approach to healthcare, like preventing illness through community-led healthcare rather than just waiting to treat the people who get sick.
1: Well, let me go next to Lisa in San Francisco. Hi, Lisa.
0: Hi, yes. um, I'm a healthcare worker. I'm a medical interpreter, and um, I've been doing most of my work remotely, but um, I've been uh, working in the hospitals as well. I live near the Mission District, and um, recently there was a study that showed the the high level of infection rate. And, uh, of course, it differs in different places, but in areas where people are poor and need to work, because otherwise they don't get any, any, any support at all. I mean, I'm wondering why our, uh, we haven't been pushing more towards uh, demanding uh, more of a progressive tax uh, on billionaires. Uh, California is the home of the, most of the billionaires in the country, number one. And also there's other examples that are shown in Chile, for example, which is the country where my mother was from the National Association of Public Employees together with professional organiz- healthcare uh, professionals, organizations, and human rights, they uh, basically sued the government uh, for its criminal negligence. And um, I know some people would think that, oh, it's too late now to be placing blame. No, there are uh, responsibilities for the deaths of so many people. There's, the last thing I heard was that uh, 95,000 healthcare workers have been infected in the United States, um, there 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 is someone should be responsible and you assume that the government um is responsible for the health of its citizens um and apparently that's not the case and so i think people would have more trust if they saw some more accountability
1: lisa thank you accountability i mean ed young i don't know if you have a reaction to what lisa is saying
2: um i'm certainly pro accountability um i think it would be a good idea to have some um, the fact that we we largely don't at the moment is, as Lisa said, a problem. Um, when asked about the deficit in testing and ab- America's inability to mount a rigorous testing campaign, Donald Trump earlier on this year said, "I take no responsibility at all. Um, and you know that those words should come back to haunt him for months to come. Let me, though, talk a little bit about the other part of Lisa's question, about um, the focus on people who are poor, um, who, are, who are unable to take the safety precautions that they would need to, because otherwise they would lose their income. I think that's exactly right. We need to be thinking about that a lot more. Um, folks in poor um, and black and brown communities are often... You know, fully aware of what they need to do to take to be safe, but they're succumbing to the virus in large and disproportionate numbers, because a lot of them, for example, work in essential, low-paid jobs. They have to go into work. They're on hourly wages. They don't have sick pay leave. Sick um, sick pay. Um, they don't have hazard pay. Um, they have to go on long commutes and crowded public transport, and I think we forget this piece of it. Like if we actually like we don't need to wait for a vaccine to reduce um, inequalities that are contributing to um, the spread of this virus. Like even a measure like sick pay for all, um, like a universal sick pay, let alone universal healthcare or hazard pay or like a minimum wage or all of these things would help people take the precautions that they actually already know how to take to stop themselves getting infected and stop themselves infecting their loved ones. That will make a huge difference immediately. And yet, we always think about the medical countermeasures first. We always look to the drugs, the vaccines, the biomedical silver bullets to save us. There are social interventions that can do a ton of good and, you know, they are necessary because America has been shredding its social safety net for the last several decades, which is contributing to the problems that we're seeing today.
1: Well, this listener writes, I have a friend who's been struggling with COVID-19 for months now, and he has extensive lung damage that he has no idea if he'll recover from. I remember, Ed Adyong, you wrote a piece back in June about people who get COVID, you know, that they got COVID months ago and are still sick.
2: Yeah, um, so I call, a lot of them call themselves long haulers, which is how I refer to them in the piece. They are folks who have um, been sick for, well, at the time I spoke to them, they've been sick since March. So what is that, four months now? Some have been going on, been sick for five, six months. I want to be clear that these are not most, many of these are not people who have been hospitalized, so technically they count as mild cases, they've never been in a ventilator, they've never been intubated, but they've been completely floored by this virus. Many of them can't do day-to-day activities, you know, they, they can't do physical activity, they can't, you know, do simple chores. They're being pummeled by rolling waves of symptoms, like the usual respiratory ones, the lung problems that um, your your guest talked about, but also neurological problems, heart and cardiovascular problems, gastrointestinal problems. We have this um, very dichotomized view of the virus that, like, only elderly or sick people get severe disease, and then they're really ill. Some of them die. Um, And everyone else has something that's no more than a cult. And that is very wrong. A lot of people who um, are not hospitalized, some of whom haven't even been tested, have COVID symptoms for months on end, and it's wrecked their lives. And a lot of them were young, healthy, fit. Um, This, I think, should, It certainly gives me pause as someone, you know, who is in my late 30s thinking about my risk when I go outside. It really makes me recalculate what I am prepared to do and what risks I am prepared to take because the options here are not death, very rare, and mild illness slash recovery, everyone else. There's also the prospect of medium to long-term disability. And we're Mm -hmm. gonna start seeing more of those stories come out um as this pandemic progresses
1: well a couple more comments and writes that was a depressing view on vaccination but weeks ago it was reported that there was unprecedented government support for pre-manufacturing to speed things up ben tweets sadly even here in california we could have done better way earlier With tactical testing, it's hard to blame Trump for San Quentin. California is the fifth largest economy on the planet, two-thirds of the population of the UK. We have no excuses. Ed Young, we just have a minute or so left. And and you've been quite prescient, of course, with this pandemic coming to pass um, from things that you wrote years ago. But can you just tell us, you know, through your reporting for the last five months or so, I mean, is this all just... Confirmation of what you thought. Have you learned something new through this? I mean, how is this going to
2: end? Um, I I don't know how it's going to end. I will tell you the new the, the the thing that the pandemic has driven home for me more than anything else is that we live in a very vulnerable world. And as per the, your last uh, list, um, listener, yes, it's not just Trump's fault. Um, he is a central part of this problem and should be held accountable for it. But there are other weaknesses. We've already talked about public health underfunding, health problems with the healthcare system. Um, you know, the, the the prison system, which he alluded to, um, is part of that problem. There are lots and lots of holes to fix. Um, and hopefully this gives us the energy to try and address them.
1: Well, Ed Young, thank you so much for your comprehensive reporting. It's really been invaluable to my understanding of the coronavirus or the extent that I can wrap my head around it all. Ed Yong, science journalist for The Atlantic. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: And thanks to our listeners for their questions and comments. Judy Campbell produced this segment. I'm Nina Kim. Thank you for listening.